Ladies and gentlemen, and fellow golfers, for your entertainment. It's the Golf to Go Hour with Frank LaRosa, brought to you by Hagen Oaks, America's most awarded golf facility, and Naturewood Home Furnishings, where it's all about choices and always about quality. It's Thursday night. It's 6 p.m. It's time for the Golf to Go Radio Hour. How are you? My name is Frank LaRosa. I'm here with my co-host, Scott Marsh, and uh, we are back. And Scott, what an exciting show we have tonight. I can't wait. I can't believe we're talking to the grandson of the great Bobby Jones. I'm so excited, of course, with Masters uh, coming up here in a couple of weeks. Yeah, Bob Bob Jones, the uh, the fourth, is a uh, sports psychologist in Atlanta, and uh, we're going to talk to him about about his grandfather, Bobby Jones, who certainly was an icon in the world of sports. And and to kind of keep the whole uh, history theme going, you know, Bing Maloney is 70 years old this year, and the Bing Maloney Women's Golf Club is also 70 years old. So we've got uh, Caroline Rudolph and uh, Vi McNally from that club to talk about some of the history that's gone on over the years. Yeah, it's super cool. It's, it really truly is a league of their own. I, I can't wait to talk to them and uh, find out about the changes in the course and, and what life was like way back when at Big Maloney with this club starting. And you and I can lie about our golf scores, but we'd rather let those people talk about stuff that's really important and uh, entertaining. And so we're going to have a couple of messages here, and we'll be right back with more Golf to Go Radio Hour right after this. It's the Golf to Go Hour with Frank LaRosa. Golf to Go Radio Hour continues here on Sports 1140 KHDK. I'm Frank LaRosa along with uh, Scott Marsh. Really excited today to have um, a name that you'll certainly recognize. Uh, Robert T. Jones IV is a licensed psychologist at the Behavioral Institute of Atlanta. Dr. Jones is a nationally recognized sports psychologist, and he's appeared on many major sports outlets, including the Golf Channel, ESPN, and NBC Sports. Uh, He also happens to be the grandson of golf icon Robert T. Jones Jr., better known as Bobby Jones, who, of course, founded the Augusta National Golf Club and the Masters Tournament. Uh, Welcome, Doc, to the uh, Golf to Go Radio Hour. Well, guys, thank you so much for having me. It's a real honor and privilege to be with you. We are we are so excited to have you, um, you know, as as the grandson of, of uh, one of the icons uh, in the golf world. I, I can imagine that, um, it, you know, in some days it's it's really exciting to be uh, to be his grandson. And other days you wonder, you know, what about me? <laughs> it, it's kind of kind of had to have, have your own uh, personality there. Well, you know, it's 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 funny, Frank. I, I've never really. Um... I've never really had that that experience. I mean, if, if, if for a while I did. Let me rephrase that. For a while I did. You know, when I was a younger man trying to kind of make my own way, yeah, it, it got a little bit suffocating to be uh, Bobby Jones' grandson. But then when I got into my 40s, all of a sudden I started realizing, hey, wait a minute. I am the grandson of not just one of the best athletes the world has ever seen, but also one of the finest men the world has ever seen, and also a really, really great grandfather. And I thought to myself, you know, if I don't step up to the plate and really tell his story and really show how that story in many ways is also my story, if I don't do that, well, then who's going to? If I don't do that, then I'm leaving his legacy to be defined by people who may not have ever known him. So ever since that point, it has actually become probably um, next to matters of my personal faith, um, 
probably some of the most important stuff that I do. And I don't think there's any aspect of my life that my grandfather hasn't influenced. I, I'm sure he would be very proud of you, uh, you know, carrying his legacy, but also being the man you are uh, in the way of doing it. You know, you, you spoke about him as the man and, you know, we think of him as the athlete, but um, he was he was quite a unique individual. His his education, his background, and um, he, he was he was kind of a, you know, someone that was interested in a lot of things. He was. You know, there's an old concept that you'll find in classical education called the Renaissance man. Uh, and that's the person who has uh, a wide range of knowledge across different areas. And, you know, there are a lot of people who uh, I think aspire to be one, but rarely kind of make it. He actually did. And his academic background showed it. I mean, he did a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering from Georgia Tech. And then after that, went to Harvard, where he did a second bachelor's degree in English literature. Then he attended um, then he attended Emory University Law School, where he attended for a year and a half, was their law school student of the year in his first year. And then after a year and a half, he took the bar after he was dared to do it by two of his classmates and passed it <laughs> and never had to go back to finish law school. But, you know. <laughs> But then he was also a voracious reader. He loved uh, he loved classical music and opera. But then he also enjoyed going hunting with his friends and was an avid fisherman and absolutely loved to his dying day the game of baseball. And, uh, of course, and was always a big fan of Georgia Tech football. Uh, so, I mean, he was a man of incredible interest. And yet throughout all of that, if he had one element of his life where I think his interest was the highest. He always had a deep love of people. And so uh, he probably does come closer to being a Renaissance man than just about anybody I've ever known. That's a pretty exciting description. Um, this, this, you know, this full life, full rich life that he lived um, had a, a, a pretty inauspicious start. I mean, he was he was not well as a, as a young boy. No, he was not. You know, he was born on St. Patrick's Day of 1902. Uh, what most people are not aware of is that one year, literally to the day, on St. Patrick's Day of 1901, his little brother Bailey was born. And Bailey lived for just a few months before, uh, before dying. Um, in fact, by the time Bailey died, my great-grandmother was already pregnant with my grandfather. And Bailey, she always felt that Bailey died because she he never got the good medical care that he could have gotten in Atlanta. So he had my uh, great-grandfather move her to Atlanta. And that's that's where Bub was. Bub is what we called him in the family. And that's where Bub was born. Now, interestingly enough, uh, my great-grandmother was so distraught by the death of her first son that the only time she would ever refer to little Bailey after he died was she would call him the baby that died. Mm -hmm. And my great-grandfather would never speak of him again. And there was a certain tenacity that my great-grandmother had that she transferred uh, over to my grandfather uh, and a real fighting spirit that we later saw, of course, in his world of competitive golf, but then also later in his life when he had to deal with a very debilitating spinal illness. So, um, yeah, it was an inauspicious start 
but it was certainly one that gave him the skill sets that he would need both to conquer, as Herbert Warren Wind said, the best that life had to offer with grace and dignity, and then in later life to conquer just about the worst that life had to offer with equal grace and dignity. So from uh, little seeds come big oaks. We're talking with uh, Robert T. Jones IV. Uh, he's a, uh, a licensed psychologist and uh, the grandson of, of Bobby Jones. And um, Doc has, has uh, you know, graciously offered to be with us today. What was, what was Bobby Jones' um, most significant contribution to the game of golf? Ooh, that's a fair, Frank, that, wow, that's a, that is a hard question because here's what, here's my true answer to that. Um, I wrote an article back in 2002 on the centenary of his birth. And I said in that article, and I believe to this day that Bobby Jones is the singular most important figure in not just the history of American golf, but the history of golf itself. And that there is no other as no aspect of the game that he has not somehow influenced. And I'll give you just a few examples. We have nowadays we have four major championships. Why do we have four major championships? Because he won four major championships and he was the only man to win the Grand Slam in a, a single season Grand Slam. When the pros had to come for a to a, to get another tournament to make their Grand Slam, well, where did they go? They went to the golf course that he designed and the club that he founded, and the tournament that he started, the Masters tournament. He um, influenced uh, sportsmanship in the game of golf to the point that now the greatest honor that the United States Golf Association can bestow on a person is uh, uh, is the Bob Jones Award for Sportsmanship. And add to that all the books that he wrote and the instructional videos that he shot that are still state of the art today, 80 years after the fact. Um, and as I said, I, I think it's very hard to narrow that down. Uh, I think Bobby Jones remains 120 years after his death, the single most important figure in the history of golf. I, w I would agree. I, that's that's a very impressive description. Pretty exciting having uh, Doc Jones here. Uh, hi, Scott. It, it's beyond incredible. I'm speechless a little bit because I know I'm talking with royalty here. And, and Doc, uh, you know, first of all, I'm, I'm heading to the Masters in a couple of weeks for the first time. So I'm just beyond overjoyed with knowing that I'm going to Augusta and, and being at the course that your grandfather built in this just unbelievable tournament and what it means to golf and sports. But what I'd love to hear from you, I, you know, I know um, um, your grandfather died when you were still uh, in your teenage years. I just want to know what your recollections were of him when you, you, you spent time with him, you know, and, and what that meant to you. You know, our relationship was close, but it was a different kind of relationship than um, uh, than young boys would typically have with their grandfather because um, you know, most young boys, they would, um, they would, uh, you know, they, most young boys would go to, um, um, you know, they'd go fishing with their grandfather. They maybe they're in my family. Maybe they'd go play golf or they'd go to baseball games. But my grandfather was an invalid for most of my life, and so the times that I spent with him were times when we would just sit in a little sleeping porch off his uh, bedroom in Atlanta that he had glassed in, and we would just talk. 
and just be with each other. Um, I did learn quite a bit from him. I didn't really think about it at the time, but I remember when golf would be on TV that my father, who was also a very fine player, would watch golf with my grandfather and I would be in the room with them and they would turn the volume down and uh, and they would comment on what it was they were seeing on any given particular tournament. And, you know, it's funny to this day, I've often wondered, why am I so harsh on golf course on golf announcers? And then it finally occurred to me that, you know, when you grow up in a household listening to Bobby Jones make <laughs> comments about strategy yeah. and, you know, and everything else, you, you, everything else just kind of pales in comparison. I um, can only imagine. <laughs> but, yeah, I can only but, imagine with that, Bob. You know, that's that's an amazing story. Um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are in terms of, you know, everything is so professional these days. Nobody really has a concept of what amateur athletics are almost at any level. But your your grandfather certainly personified amateur athletics and obviously a much different era. But can you just talk about what that meant, you know, especially to him? Because he was the the ultimate amateur competitor who was the greatest in the world still. Yeah, you know, I, I do think we've had a considerable change in the way our society, um, in the way our society approaches sports. And in some ways, I understand the um, influence of the professional on today's game. But I also think we've kind of lost something of the person that just plays the game for the game's sake. Um, since you guys are out there on the West Coast, I will remind you that the slogan, the motto for uh, Metro Goldwyn Mayer was always Ars Gratia Artis, which is art for the sake of art. And I think that, yeah, we have kind of lost that. Um, you know, my grandfather never became pro for a number of reasons. One is he didn't really have the temperament for it. The second reason I think he never became pro was, uh, as he used to say, sometimes somewhat begrudgingly, he would say, well, you know, there also wasn't any money in it back then. Although right. Walter Hagen said, if Bobby Jones had decided to play professionally, there would have been. Hmm. Uh, I think for him, it was always a question of this. He said, um, he always used to say that his three priorities were always his family came first, the practice of law always came second, and then third came the game of golf, and that never as an end to itself. Um, you know, but by the same token, he was also a realist and he understood certainly as the 1960s approached and Arnold Palmer became the first to win a uh, hundred thousand dollars in a season, which was a huge sum of money back then. He did say, you know, nowadays, if you want to play at the absolute top level of competitive golf, you would almost have to play professionally just to get the level of competition you would need to stay sharp. So uh, while he was very devoted to amateur golf, uh, he was also the consummate real realist as well. Yep. And in his day, the, the, the two uh, amateur tournaments were part of what was finally termed the Grand Slam, uh, but yeah. the U.S. Amateur and, and the British Amateur were, were two tournaments that, that meant so much to him. And um, what we think of as the Grand Slam today, as you said, is based on the fact that there were four tournaments that he won, but it was different then. It was. In fact, there was no, first of all, 
at the time he won it, nobody had any clue what to even call it. Um, I think I often get this backwards, but you know what? Even if I get it wrong, who's going to really know, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Um, I think it was George Trevor, the golf writer George Trevor, who I think, or maybe it was, maybe it was, maybe it was Keeler, but whoever it was, one of the writers first came up with the term to describe the Grand Slam as the impregnable quadrilateral. <laughs> well, no, that's not going to stick. I mean, I can't. I can barely that's not even a catchy it. phrase. There is no, no. And I think Grand Slam came around, came up because you know you hit a Grand Slam and four runs score in baseball, and I mm -hmm. think that sort of became. And since he was a baseball fan, that worked. So, um, but uh, yeah, they didn't even know what to what to call it for quite a while after it happened. Interestingly, the professionals never really knew what to call it and didn't even have one. They had three championships: they had the British, the U.S. Open, and the PGA. But they didn't have that fourth component. And I believe it was Bob Drum, uh, who was the longtime kind of writer and companion and uh, associate and friend of Arnold Palmer's, who uh, said, well, let's make the Masters the fourth part of the Grand Slam, which really kind of got my grandfather because, you know, for many years privately, he hated the term the Masters. He thought the tournament should be called the Augusta National Invitation. And people would say, well, but Bob, this is a championship. And he would get outraged. He would say, a championship? A championship of what? It's a tournament that's held by a club. We have winners. We don't have champions. And he would privately refer to the tournament among friend, close friends and family as the so-called masters. That's what he would call it. Wow. And then finally in 1960, when Palmer won it, and that somebody asked him about that, he said, you know, I didn't like it at first, but I really do believe the Masters best embodies what this tournament really is all about now. And I'll go you one better. And I would say that if he were alive today and he looked at how the tournament is developed, he would no longer have any problem calling the winner of the Masters a true champion. I just don't think you'd have a problem with it at all. I'm getting goosebumps here. We're talking with Robert T. Jones IV. Uh, he is the grandson of Bobby Jones. And uh, Scott and I have uh, so much more to ask him. We'll be back with, with Doc Jones and Golf to Go right after this. It's the Golf to Go Hour with Frank LaRosa. We are back here at uh, Golf to Go, Sports 1140 KHTK. Hi, I'm Frank LaRosa. We are... Uh, along with Scott Marsh, talking with uh, Robert T. Jones IV. He is the grandson of the uh, iconic uh, Bobby Jones. And uh, with the Masters tournament coming up in uh, in just a week or so, um, you know, there's there's so many questions. And 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 Doc, you've just been uh, been so good uh, talking about your grandfather. You know, one of the things that that occurred to Scott and I earlier. Do you play golf? I do. I do. Um, I mean, you know, I guess by the standards of the world, uh, I'm a pretty good golfer. I mean, I carry an eight handicap at the Atlanta Athletic Club, which is no shabby track. That's pretty um, good. Yeah. Although, you know, when you look at this, my grandfather's handicap at his peak was calculated to be about a plus seven or a plus eight playing <laughs> with hickory shafts and uh, balls that were like 20 compression. My father at his peak was calculated to be at about, a, well, he actually was a plus three, 
at his peak. So, you know, I mean, I'm very proud of that eight, but I'm also very cognizant of the fact that it's living proof that the gene pool does dilute over time. So, <laughs> so there is that. You know, you mentioned the hickory shafts and, uh, you know, we, we think about it as, as being very romantic and uh, it was something that was played then. That was, that was pretty interesting to try and play with hickory shafts because you know, you play in the heat, it's it's one kind of uh, uh, golf club. You play in the cold, it's totally different. And and to, you know, to be able to to play in all conditions and, and be able to work the ball the, the way he did, that that's pretty remarkable. Well, it is. And here's what makes it even more remarkable. You are correct in that the playability changes with the temperature, but it also changes with the humidity. And so that is why if you see picture, oh, and oh, don't, let's not also forget the torque. You had two levels of torque that went on on the club head. You had a torque that worked up and down, but also a torque that worked side to side. And then the club head would flex in that, in those ranges. So you have all that going on, varying with temperature and with humidity. And that's why sometimes you will see um, like clubs that he was using in a United States Open. You would see like bands of whipping along the shaft because that was a way you could stiffen up a shaft. Because in the summertime, those shafts had a lot more kick and flex to them. But then you'll see other shots where he's playing them in the Walker Cup overseas or in the British Amateur or the British Open. And uh, there's no whipping on the shaft because he needed a little more flex there. But I'll go you one better, and most people don't think about this. Um, we see now guys that will go out to the practice tee and hit hundreds of golf balls. That wasn't done in my grandfather's day. And the reason why is because hickory shafts had only so many shots in them. Ah. And if you went out to a practice tee to beat out a couple of hundred golf balls, you would probably have to change shafts every, oh, I don't know, you'd probably have changed shafts at least once a year. And, uh, I mean, they'd start snapping. I mean, it was so, what that forced him to do is that forced him to use a lot of psychological techniques like visualization and relaxation training and certain skills uh, that psychology wouldn't even develop uh, or articulate for another 50 or 60 years until the work of Bob Rotella. You know, he also um, decided that in order to help the, the, the everyday player that uh, steel might be a way to, uh, you know, to make it a more even uh, playing field for, for golf clubs. So he designed a set of steel shafted clubs. He most certainly did. And they were made by A.G. Spaulding, designed by Victor East. They actually also had one other feature that was quite interesting, and that is on the backs of the irons, they had a flange coming off the back to put more weight on the bottom of the club to help the average player get the ball in the air. But the funniest part of it was that people wouldn't buy them because Bobby Jones played with hickory. He did <laughs> not play with steel. So Spalding came up with a novel solution, and that was they took that club and they painted the shaft yellow to look like hickory. And then the Robert T. Jones Jr. Crow Flights became the leading seller of Spalding's and one of the leading sellers in golf uh, for the next uh, the next 50 years.
Jump in there, Scott. Yeah, no, I'm just interested in terms of I, I know that, you know, the times you spent were just kind of spent talking with your, your grandfather. I want to know, uh, it, it, particularly in terms of the masters and, and what he may have imparted to you. And we went over, you know, his concept of champion and, and masters itself. But I just some other recollections a, a, about what he may have shared with you in terms of what he did with the course and, and how the tournament eventually became to be what it is today. Well, we never we never got a chance to talk about that much because um, by the time uh, by the time I was able to attend the Masters for the first time when I was twelve years old in nineteen seventy, he was no longer going to the tournament. Okay, and you know because of his illness, I had never really, um, shall I say, encountered the magnitude of who Bobby Jones was. Yeah. But I'll never forget the Sunday before the Masters in 1970, I flew into Augusta and there was a car from the club waiting to bring me to the, to, out to the course. My father was on the rules committee and he would have met me, but he had a meeting that ran late. And when we got to the golf course, it was pitch black dark. Uh, we went into the Jones cabin. I was going to be sharing a room with uh, with my dad, which was unfortunate because my father snored like a freight train. But that's <laughs> so did my grandfather, for that matter. But um, but at any rate, um, so it was pitch black dark and you couldn't see anything. And then the next morning uh, I woke up. I've always been an early riser and I woke up at about 6.15 and I didn't want to wake anybody up. So I just walked out of the bedroom and walked out onto the porch of the Jones cabin. And I looked out over that Vista from the clubhouse up on my right, all the way down the hill to my left and 10 is right in front of me. And it may sound silly, but this was the first time I ever encountered the magnitude of who Bobby Jones was. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, um, I was bowled over because what occurred to me was that, Everything that I was seeing there had existed in my grandfather's mind before a shovel full of dirt had been turned over on that property. And that was the first time it really, really hit me just who this man was that was my grandfather. And later in the week, uh, the next week when I was back in school, uh, I called Bub. I, I used to call him every week. And uh, he said, well, son, I heard you went to, went to the master's. I said, yes, sir, I did. He said, well, what did you think? And uh, I said, I said, Bub, I, I think it's the most incredible thing I've ever seen. Yeah. And he was really quiet. And then all he said was, well, son, that's just fine. I'm glad you were able to go. And it wasn't until many decades later. In fact, I was talking to my wife, Mimi, about this. And I told her that story. And she said, yeah, probably the reason he was quiet is because that's probably something he would have always liked to have shared with you. Uh, wow. wow, that's so amazing. And I'm still just so overwhelmed with how the, the tournament, you know, works the tickets. And in the case of myself, one of my friends, he, he'd been, you know, trying to get tickets in the lottery for 20 years and, and finally won the tickets. And, you know, it's it's maybe the most coveted ticket in sports. I would say it's it's a, it's right up there with the Super Bowl, maybe even more uh, 
you know, challenging to to get, and but still the tickets, the face value are are right around a hundred dollars, which is so affordable to everybody. It's so welcoming. It's just incredible in the world that we live in today. Um, what I'm wondering for somebody who's going to the first time, like myself, you, you talked about that incredible look as you're kind of looking at ten. But what are some of the you would suggest like things you you really want to see or kind of look at for somebody who, who's fortunate enough to to maybe get to the course at some point in their lifetime? I think the first, I think if I had to give a piece of advice on that, what I would do, first of all, one of the worst things you can do is pick a group and follow that group, especially if it's somebody that's super popular. Yeah. Like trying to follow Tiger Woods is kind of like, uh, kind of like, um, yeah, that's kind of impossible. Of course, we won't have to worry about that this year. Um, but here's one of the things I always suggest. Get there as absolutely early in the day as you can absolutely get there as early in, in the day as you can and go down and look at amen corner before anybody gets a chance to play there when it's just quiet and you can just see it particularly to see number 12 and then also 11 green and then number 12 and then to walk 13 and see 13 it's just you have to there's no describing it but I think that's where I would always start with people. Yeah. And then after that, you know, there's a great spectator guide that my grandfather wrote many, many years ago that's still quite good that talks about places where you can see multiple holes at the same time. And that is really, really a handy thing. The other thing is if you've got really strong binoculars, you can actually have situations, for example, there are spots by um, number 15 fairway where if you have really strong binoculars, you can actually almost see up to 18 green. Wow. And so you can watch from where you are. You can watch 15 part of 16, 17 approach shots. And with binoculars, you can see uh, play on the 18th hole as well. So um, there are many, many things that I think are um, just great to see. One of the ones I also think is really one of the spots I also think is great. And I think it's the most underrated hole on the golf course is number five. I, I think five is really worth uh, taking a walk out to see. How do you think your your grandfather would feel about the adjustments they've made to the course over the years? And of course, the the the, the I won't say controversy, but they always the constant question about whether they should extend number thirteen or not. That tremendous par five. Well, I think you know I think you have to understand that Augusta National has gone through significant renovation almost since the day it opened. Yeah. So um, I mean, originally the back nine was the front nine, and the front nine was the back nine, and then the next year they flipped them. And then if you go through, there was a sports writer, Stan Birdie, who wrote a really great book on the, um, uh, the modifications and changes that were made to Augusta National over the years. So I think what they've done over the years to bring more clubs into use in the bag has been a really good thing. As far as the controversy goes on extending 13, um, you know, that's a trick because what do you, you know, what do you do? I mean, if you extend the T back, then you change the risk reward character of the second shot. But how do you then, what do you do? Blast out the side of the hill to move the green complex and raise Creek back to go with it? Or do you keep the T where it is and just move it a little bit more to the player's left 
so that it forces um, a stronger encounter with the dog leg. There just comes a point where um, you just have to recognize that there are some limitations uh, in the architecture. But I guarantee you, if anybody can figure out how to do it, yeah. Augusta National will figure out how to do it. <laughs> You're listening to Golf to Go. We are talking with uh, Robert T. Jones IV, a licensed uh, psychologist and the grandson of uh, Mr. Bobby Jones. Uh, uh, Doc, um, obviously, um, it was a it was a very rare disease that um, that that took uh, your grandfather's life. And if I'm pronouncing it correctly, it's syringomyelia. Um, hard to say. Frank, I'm, very, to... I'm very impressed. <laughs> hard, to say, hard to say and hard to cure, but there's a foundation now that, uh, that you're, you know, uh, is very close to your heart. What, tell us about it and what can our listeners do to help? Well, we are just very proud uh, to be a part of what is now called the Bobby Jones Chiari and Syringomyelia Foundation. You can find them online at Bobby Jones CSF. Dot org. That's BobbyJonesCSF.org. We do a golf tournament every year. In fact, it's going to be this coming Monday at Eastlake Golf Club here in Atlanta uh, to raise money. We um, do events all over the United States. Um, we would love it if uh, some of your listeners would visit the website and if, if they feel so inclined uh, to please um, make a donation to help us find a cure for this disease. Um, you know, we used to think that this that syringomyelia and its cousin Chiari malformation were very, very rare things, so rare that they used to be classified as uncommon, which means might as well get hit by lightning. Now we know that over three million people at any one time are afflicted with these conditions. And as of yet, there is no cure. But we're working towards it. We've done, um, we get the tournament every year at East Lake. We did another one, a second fall tournament at Wingfoot last year, which was a blast. They were wonderful hosts for us. And we're looking forward to expanding, um, expanding tournaments uh, for Bobby Jones CSF. And who knows, we might make a trip to the West Coast at some point. We would look forward to that. You know, the West Coast, uh, just quickly, obviously has, um, has um, you know, it, it, it was in the story of uh, building Augusta National when Bobby Jones saw uh, Cypress Point and thought about Mr. Um, Mr. McKenzie. McKenzie, all of a sudden a marriage was born. Well, that's right. And But he and McKenzie were close friends to begin with. When the Walker Cup was played at St. Andrews in 26, uh, McKenzie walked all followed my grandfather in every one of his rounds was walking with OB Keeler, the golf writer from Atlanta. And then later in between rounds in the 27 uh, British Open, Mackenzie and my grandfather spent the whole time uh, in between the tournaments just talking about their philosophy about golf courses, things like that. Most people don't realize besides the British, the U.S. amateur at Pebble Beach in 29, where my grandfather lost in the first round, he did play that exhibition over at Cypress Point. But the other reason that he was there was to join uh, Dr. McKenzie and uh, Bub's dear friend, Marion Hollins, uh, to inaugurate the great golf course, Pasatiempo. So Bub's there, got a big print out in California. There, there's some pretty remarkable names right there in that for some. Huh? You bet. You bet. You know, Bob, um, we, uh, 
every week we say that the show is not long enough and and we could go on for hours with you and and i scott and i are, are so thrilled to have had you uh, with us today and i can't tell you how much it means um you know to have your insight uh, your personal knowledge and um you know, and and sort of the romantic uh, thoughts about your 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 granddad, and um, it, it's meant a lot to have you on Golf to Go. Well, it's meant a lot to me too, and and at the risk of being rude and inviting myself back, I'm always available whenever you guys want me. You know, uh, we could we could put a third name, you know, as host <laughs> of the show. <laughs> well, would I have to pay tax in California? <laughs> that you'll have to talk to Scott about that. I okay, we'll we'll figure something out with that, Doc. All right, <laughs> Robert T. Jones the fourth, um, uh, grandson of Bobby Jones. What a pleasure it's been to have you on Golf to Go. And yes, we would look forward to having you on the show as many times as we can possibly get you. There's so much more to talk about, and uh, we appreciate your time and and everything you've covered with us today. Thank you so much, guys. It's the Golf to Go Hour with Frank LaRosa. Golf to Go Radio Hour continues here. Frank LaRosa along with Scott Marsh. And uh, we're going to continue in this historical vein because uh, we have on the phone uh, Caroline uh, Rudolph, who is the captain of the Bing Maloney Women's Golf Club, and Vi McNally, uh, past captain. And she's the historian of the club. And, and the reason that all uh, makes sense is that this year, uh, Bing Maloney is celebrating the 70th anniversary of the Women's Golf Club. That's a lot of time uh, for people to be playing golf at that golf course. Welcome, ladies. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having us. So wh what do you think it was like 70 years ago when the first women in the club uh, decided to tee it up at Bing Maloney? It was a godsend to them because it gave them another course to play on at that time. There was a maximum of only 125 women who could play per club, and there would be a waiting list. This included at, at Bing, as well as uh, previously at Hagen Oaks and Land Park. Those were the only three courses at that time. Yes, they were. They were the public courses of that time. And Hagen was only a nine-hole. Mm, no, and Land Park. Land Park, Land Park was a nine-hole, but they planted 250 trees at Hagen and hoped to open in their second nine in 1961. Yes. And one of the problems was that residential homes were being built closer and closer to the golf course. Yes, they were. Now, I have a friend, Judy Longacre. Her dad was a scratch golfer, took her out to the opening day, and she said the trees were still in five-gallon <laughs> so they had 27 holes at the time because the because the McKenzie course was built in 1932. So, um, you know, yes. so that would have would have given them 27 holes. And then that last nine. Um, yeah. Uh, golf in Sacramento has certainly changed a lot over 70 years. Uh, do you remember what it was like to try and get a tea time or, or have you heard stories about what it was like to try and get a tea time then? Oh, my God. And some of us actually experienced it. You would have to initially go down to um, McClatchy Park. McKinley. Well, it started at McClatchy, and then it moved to McKinley later uh -huh. on. And um, this was getting up at, at 3, maybe 4 o'clock in the morning, so you could get down there by 4.30. Put your hat down in a row, because there was already at least 10 or 15 men who had already come down and uh, occasionally, they would be kind enough to bring coffee and donuts 
You'd uh, essentially put your hat down at your place in line. You uh, would go back to your car and wait for the light to come on in the office at six. (laughs) And then you'd stand in line to get a single tea time. You had to coordinate things. You had to have a buddy with you, or at least three or four, so that if you wanted tea times um, a group together, you could do that. And sometimes you couldn't uh, get them grouped together, so you'd uh, you would uh, negotiate with uh, men who'd already gotten those times and see if the if you could pull off a uh, a retiming, should I say. <laughs> You know, um, certainly the 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 the, um, the popularity of the game has gone up and down. Uh, you know, you talk about uh, those years where you had to stand in line to get a tee time, and you know, then there were years that uh, golf wasn't quite as popular as it is today. It's it's incredible, incredibly popular right now, and much of that due to the uh, pandemic. What, what do you think that's done for your membership in terms of bringing new people in? You know, okay, so when we think about um, how much golf had declined from those uh, 124, 25 uh, members max with a waiting list, and at at one point, our club was down to 25 members. Um, And then um, organizations uh, like the First Tee started a junior group. And Morton Goff started a group called uh, Women New to Golf. This started probably 2017-18 timeframe. And it has generated a a plethora of new members excited uh, to play the game. Mostly are still working. So uh, this is only their weekend golfers. Uh, And women who used to play and are now retired and are loving being able to come back. We're talking with uh, Caroline Rudolph and uh, Vi McNally from the uh, Bing Maloney Women's Golf Club. Scott, what do you think about a group that's been around 70 years? I think it's amazing. And listening to how it was trying to get tee times, it sounds like what it was like trying to get Kings tickets back in the early days. What a crazy time trying to set up. I remember at the old arena having to set up a lawn chair hours before games, just trying to get in line for a coveted ticket. So I'm getting a sense of what it was like the golf here in Sacramento at uh, one prior time. I'm curious, just in terms of, you know, playing at Bing Maloney and what you've noticed over the the times and the years, obviously I I play out there these days, but how has the course changed and what's it been like over the the transition over the course of time that you guys have been involved? Well, I I have to, I have to confess that I was a kid back then. And, um, but we lived about a quarter of a mile from the 11th uh, key. Um, So the course definitely has changed. Um, The 11th, hole used to be a little shorter the 12th hole used to be a straight straight away four par where now it's totally different um there used to be two lakes uh one on uh, hole number three which is a three par and hole number 13 which is a three par but the kids in the neighborhood no names will be mentioned here <laughs> would go there to um swim in the pond with um <laughs> didn't really, uh, you know, uh, Buzz Pendleton and, and Tom Doris weren't really keen on us doing that. Uh, at this point, the trees had gone from being out of the five-gallon buckets and having two stakes, 
to hold them straight um, as the north wind would blow. So um, the course definitely has changed. Um, the, uh, the new rules of golf that came out in 2019 have made it much more enjoyable because it's ready golf. You can get out there and finish 18 well within or uh, shorter than four hours. Uh, the camaraderie is great, whether you're a man or a woman. Um, I would heartily encourage it. And I have to say, gentlemen, that while we are 70 years old, this this uh, women's uh, golf club, the course is also 70 years old. So um, we feel uh, much akin to uh, to Bing Maloney. Absolutely. I'm curious, you know, in, in the beginning times, you, you mentioned, you know, starting this, this this female club. How were you received by the men out there in, in that era? Was it always a, a copacetic out there or were there some challenges over time with that? Um, I think the biggest uh, issue, uh, shall I say, is that women learned if they wanted to be accepted. Excuse me, I'm, I'm removing someone from us. Um <laughs> needed to be accepted, uh, they learned how to play quick golf. They learned how, if the first two had put it in, to scurry over to the, the, the next tee so they weren't holding the men up. Uh, personally, um, as a kid who was playing back then, um, the men, in, in particular my, my dad's friends, uh, came to accept I, as a young player and as a teenager, um, under certain circumstances, I kept my mouth shut. <laughs> I played fast. And you know what? The women are, were very accepting, including myself, of this because they were able to play the game. And particularly when you think now of the pan during the pandemic years, golf was the outlet for so many people. It was one of the few sports you could play um, social distancing and staying safe. You know, uh, you, you talk about uh, the 12th hole being a, a straight par four in the beginning with that big oak tree, you know, which is, you know, I don't know whether it was planted there or whether it was always there, but 70 years later, that 12th hole is one of the toughest holes in, in Sacramento and always has been. Well, can you imagine that, 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 um, you were hitting from straight, but where you were hitting from was, oh, about 25 to 50 yards shy of the now 11th hole. So you had that big oak tree, or I think it's a cottonwood, actually, on, on that left side. And on the right side, you had another one. <laughs> so it, it was a little narrow in there when you teed off. So um, if, if women want to play golf uh, and, and they're new to the game and they want to come to Bing Maloney, what, how, how do they get involved? You know, there, there are um, uh, Janet, Janet Vorkek, V-O-R. I just massacred her last name, and <laughs> I apologize now, Janet. Um, she's running the new to uh, women's golf. Um, if you go to the Bing Maloney website, they have on that website a listing of the women's golf clubs that play out there and their membership director's uh, phone number and name. And whether it's the 
the we play Friday morning. Uh, the uh, Sacramento Chinese women play uh, occasionally in front of us. Uh, there's a group on Mondays. There's a, a nine-hole group on Tuesdays. Plenty of players out there, or, or I should say um, uh, um, uh, clubs. And all that information not only is on our bulletin boards, but also on the Bing Maloney website. Well, uh, Caroline and, and Vi, I think Scott and I both feel that if, uh, if we can keep our mouth shut and play fast, maybe, maybe some days you'll let, let us play with you. <laughs> Anytime, gentlemen. Yeah, well, we'll keep it quick, we promise. Congratulations on 70 years. That's quite yeah. an accomplishment. Congratulations to the uh, Bing Maloney Women's Golf Club. Thank you both for being with us. That's another quick hour here on the Golf to Go radio show. Uh, boy, thanks so much to Bob Jones, uh, to Caroline, and to Vi uh, for being with us. Scott, another week down. Fantastic show again, and I just can't wait to um, be at the Masters and with the perspective we got today from from Bob Jones. That's fantastic. We may have to have you just as a guest. How about that? Well, I don't know about that. It was great listening to Bob Jones, but I, I can't wait to report back when I do get back. Looking forward to it. Uh, have a good time, and uh, we will be back next week with more Golf to Go on Sports 1140 KHTK.